Buzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science to Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and August 2021, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Samantha Shu, who is since completing her PhD recently, working for the Australian Federal Commonwealth Government as a policy officer in the animal welfare team within the Agricultural Policy Division. Welcome, Samantha. Hello, Sabrina. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. And I want to just quickly say thank you for inviting me. And I'm really excited for this podcast today and hopefully share some of my research I've done through my PhD. Yes, I'm absolutely delighted to have you. And I'm sure you will be sharing lots of interesting work, your PhD, how you got into this field, your work now. So yeah, let's get started. And we always like to start the podcast with like perhaps like an early story of you connecting with animals and uh, or an experience with animals perhaps you want to start with that definitely that's actually a really good question Serena I'm thinking about oh like an early story of myself connecting with animals oh I think you know thinking about it there's no one specific I guess story that I hone in on all I know that is throughout my whole childhood and life I've always had an interest in animals, but I would say one of the earliest memories of myself connecting with animals probably was when I was in kindergarten. And I remember specifically, we went to a farm where I think it was a petting zoo. And I just remembered we, I was able to meet so many different animals, horses, calves, rabbits, chickens. And I, I remember just feeling like so having so much fun that day. So I think that was one of my earliest memories of connecting with animals. But yeah, throughout my childhood and as I grew older, there was definitely many moments um, with not only owning my own pets, but visiting zoos throughout my like my whole life that I think I've always had an interest um, and connection with animals in that aspect. Wonderful. Yes, and of course, you know, petting zoos, a lot of zoos have also got petting zoos or domesticated animals. And a lot of us are not necessarily in an opportunity to, you know, see animals in the wild. We might live in cities. So there's lots of ways of like you say, going to a petting zoo, a children's farm, your local your local farm perhaps, or zoos to meet or see, even from a distance, of course, uh, and luckily also from a distance, many, many different animals, individuals, whether they are domesticated or wild. And uh, perhaps you could share a little bit of your background, of your, like your studies and perhaps some of your early work. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Sabrina. So in terms of, I guess, um, I'll, I'll probably start off with a bit more of my educational background. Um, so I started off with a Bachelor of Science. So I was one of those students and uh, people that like a lot of us that are passionate about animals really wanted to be a vet. So <laughs> I have completed all my studies um, at the University of Melbourne here uh, in Australia. And so I started off with my Bachelor of Science where I was really keen to be a vet. So I, um, I majored in animal health and disease, but wasn't you know so successful in getting into the veterinary program. But actually in hindsight, I was 
I'm grateful for it because it was then after um, I completed my bachelor that I actually completed a master's in animal science. And that's where I really started getting exposure to animal welfare and learning more about actually the so many other pathways we could, you know, seek and do to actually help animals, not, not just about being a vet, um, which I think when I was younger, I only ever thought that was the only option to help animals, but realizing that is actually plenty of pathways to and different positions and jobs that in ways that you can actually help animals. So um, through the masters, I that's where I really started getting exposure to zoo animals, animal welfare, and did a bit of research. And that's how I ended up doing a PhD in animal behavior and welfare. And my PhD itself focused on zoo animal welfare. I did also uh, thought I'll share back in 2017, so it was during my PhD, I was fortunate enough to also um, secure a scholarship to do a short course in at the University of Cambridge, sorry, uh, on the courses on animal welfare, science, ethics and law. So I know um, that often it is referred to as Causel. So that was a really um, great two week course in University in Cambridge to just be with like minded people and just really just focus on understanding animal for science, ethics and law, all of it. So, but yeah, in terms of that, that's, that's my educational background. Um, but in terms of other early work, I think I would like to share is that I've been fortunate enough to so, uh, work through with zoos by um, actually working for Hillsdale Century, also in Victoria, Australia as a visitor service officer. So it was a casual position, but I really am grateful for that type of experience because it really showed me more of the inner workings of a whole organization aspect. And again, I think it tied in nicely to uh, eventually what I'm sure we're gonna be talking about, which is my PhD, which looked at um, a zoo setting and the interactions between visitors and animals. Yes, wonderful. And it's so interesting because actually this the vet story has actually showed up a few times now in this podcast when I ask people about, you know, their aspirations or working with animals. And, and then oftentimes, you know, that is like the first person that comes to mind, right? Perhaps because you have companion animals yourself and sometimes when they're unwell, they have to go to the veterinarian and she can help or he can help. And, um, and sometimes we're not necessarily aware of other jobs, you know, that are out there that involve animals directly or indirectly. So it's really interesting to hear that uh, story again. And uh, I also did that same, uh, those same courses in Cambridge. I loved it. And uh, I would probably want to do it again. I had such a great uh, also personal experience just meeting all these people already like 11 years ago or so. But uh, yeah, so I'm excited uh, to hear that you also did, uh, did those courses. They were really good, right? Yeah. Oh, Kozel, I definitely agree that that was like, I think probably one of the one of the biggest highlights I would say in like a animal welfare career to like, you know, I think I think you would agree, Sabrina, I'm sure meeting Professor Broom. Oh, you know, that, that was really one of the highlights of, me, of doing Causal and just learning directly from one of the big gurus here, like within the space of animal office science. So yeah, it was great. Yes, absolutely. And all the other speakers and instructors, and it was a nice small group. So you had really a lot of opportunities to chat to each other, get to know each other. And also for me, one of the highlights was to go and see the room that Darwin uh, right was working in and his samples in the museum there it was just like so geeking out on everything animals and behavior and welfare it was just magical being there oh I totally agree I definitely geeked out while I was there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> excellent 
So perhaps before we dive into your PhD and you already, you know, lift a little bit of the, the veil with regards to uh, what it was about, can you talk a little bit more about uh, your experiences like in the sanctuary, working with customers, some of the work that you did uh, in the zoo and in the sanctuary? Oh, definitely. I, I would say like, I I know those who know me um, and whoever knows me that listens to the podcast will definitely know I am very much a fan of Hills of Sanctuary. So for those who may not be aware, Hills of Sanctuary actually falls under the big organization referred to as Zoo Victoria. So Zoo, Zoo Victoria actually has three different sites that it uh, within Victoria, that is. So that includes Hills of Sanctuary, Werribee Open Range Zoo, as well as Melbourne Zoo. So in terms of my casual role as a visitor service officer was actually at Hills of Sanctuary. And I do admit, I'm very biased to Hillsville. And I think that's primarily because I was working with such a great team there. But I think as well as the sanctuary, it was really nice to kind of get that exposure to really see it was um, fortunately as a zoo site, Hillsville was quite fortunate to be located like in um, quite a large space of bushland. So relative to uh, Melbourne Zoo, for example, which is located more in a suburban or sorry, in a more of a city location, they are quite limited in terms of space. So I think the exposure and being in Hills of Sanctuary and within the bushlands, it was really nice to kind of get um, into that immersive environment and, you know, made things really naturalistic within um, the sanctuary. And I know a lot of visitors that I met there really loved um, the sanctuary itself because of that. Um, but what I really appreciated about working at Hillsville was as you kind of picked up on Sabrina, I was really kind of learning more about that customer service aspect and seeing that aspect of zoo and recognizing how important that part of a um, zoo organization is because, you know, we're at the forefront at, of a zoo uh, and in this case of the sanctuary to really kind of be right from the get-go greeting visitors and, you know, you're the first point of contact that visitors kind of get that first exposure of having an opportunity to learn about animals. Why are zoos so important? Conservation, captive breeding, all of that, that I learned about that and was able to take that opportunity to really share and educate visitors as much as I can. And I think that really honed in on my interest to really kind of look at how visitors impact animals because of that, seeing how important visitors are, not only in terms of being, you know, bringing in the revenue, ensuring as a business, as you operates, but, you know, it's actually a really great opportunity to teach visitors as much as you can about how important zoos are, teach them about animal welfare and kind of get that balance, seeing that, you know, not only is animal welfare important, but also visitor experience. So I really love that aspect of working at Hillsville Sanctuary because of that. And yeah, I think that only helps me really focus on that particular aspect within my PhD itself um, on the visit animal interaction aspect. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, of course, a lot of visitors are interested in animal welfare in conservation work and also what can they do in their urban areas or in the rural areas that they might be living in and uh, and understanding also what the animals think about the visitors, right, if they think they are a nuisance or, you know, rather go away or if they're like, hey, where is everybody and want a nice interaction or some neutral stance or whatever, but really understanding this and also how that then feeds into our educational problems. So how do we decide what is in the best interest of the animals when we have certain programs and also what 
the individual differences are between the individuals in those programs. There's just so many things there. And um, yeah, Zeus Victoria just recently became an organizational pause member. So I'm very grateful for that and have them on board because they are certainly really, you know, forerunners of animal welfare science and conservation and so many uh, wonderful pro programs that they run there. So uh, that's that's really exciting. And uh, I hope to come. I haven't uh, actually visited any of the of the three parks. So I hope uh, one day uh, to make it over and see them. And uh, of course, also see your beloved uh, sanctuary. So uh, you've really piqued my curiosity. And, um, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so you have recently um, finished your PhD. Congratulations again. And uh, perhaps you we can we can dive into uh, some of the research that you did there, like the effects of the presence of the zoo visitors of uh, zoo house little penguins, and uh, and also the uh, the interactions that the zoo visitor penguin interactions might have. Oh, definitely. Thanks, Sabrina. I'm gonna try my best to not waffle or go on tangents too much. So definitely direct oh, me if I end up so going welcome. a little bit. Yeah, go for it. And we love the animal stories, so bring in the penguins. And <laughs> All right, well, I better get started then. So, well, for those um, probably already heard snippets on Sabrina, my PhD was fortunately working with little penguins, but in particular, the actual aim of my entire um, PhD was really trying to understand that effects of the interactions between visitors and penguins themselves, but also understand that that affects on both not only the animal, so in terms of their welfare and behavior, but also the visitors, because I realized as starting through my PhD and going through, you know, understanding, trying to focus what I was going to focus on, because as we already know, zoos, there's so many things we could focus on and look at in terms of not only in terms of interactions between visitors, and animals, but the conservation aspects, education aspects, and so on. So initially, I remember when I started my PhD, it was kind of hard to hone in. It's like, what am I exactly going to, you know, really focus on? Um, so I picked up within the literature that is there is growing evidence to you know you demonstrate that visitors can have an effect on a wide range of zoo species but then I picked up that actually there wasn't much research yet to really kind of also look at that other aspect of that relationship because you know with any relationship it goes both ways right so I was really keen to kind of start looking at seeing whether we can get some form of indication of okay I'm focusing on little penguins so, but I want to understand what do actually the little penguins themselves do to the visitors in terms of attitudes, in terms of the behavior, as well as the experience at the enclosure itself. So that was in terms of the main overarching focus of my PhD, looking at the both sides of that visitor penguin relationship and trying to understand the impacts on both the animal as well as the visitor. Um, so I guess I'll kind of delve straight in in terms of like the main findings. So I'll kind of talk a little bit more first about um, the effect of the actual visitor on zoo house little penguins because as a species itself actually there's not much research done on little penguins the main studies really around penguins was done by one of my supervisors for my PhD which is Dr Sally Sherwin who's also um, the director of wildlife conservation science at Zoo Victoria so through her PhD she also did a study on little penguins and it was kind of from her study that I really delved into the direction that I took my PhD which was she found that um, visitors at Melbourne Zoo did in terms of their presence do have a negative effect on little penguins there where it was indicated through behavioral responses where penguins uh, sorry the little penguins at Melbourne Zoo were showing quite a bit of avoidance of visitors 
But apart from that, in terms of the results, we couldn't really say much else apart from knowing the fact that com in compared to the absence of visitors, we knew the presence of visitors were leading to an increase of voidness response on little penguins. So then it got me really thinking about, okay, well, what is it about that potential presence of visitors or the conditions within the area of the enclosure that actually was leading to that avoidance response. So through my PhD, that was kind of like my main focus in terms of that animal aspect to understand what exactly about visitors or the conditions in the visitor area that was that would be leading to that effect on um, little penguins themselves. So I was actually really fortunate that um, through my PhD, not only was it funded by Australian Research Link uh, sorry, Research Council Linkage Grant, uh, but I was able to collaborate with three different zoos. So firstly, I was able to work with Melbourne Zoo, um, so that's Zoo Victoria in um, Australia here. Then I was able to work with Trong Zoo, which is located in Sydney here in Australia as well, New South Wales. And my final study, I was fortunate enough to work with Wellington Zoo, which is in New Zealand. So I was fortunate enough to work with three different zoos. But one of the things that I found really interesting from what I found in my research was that all three zoos found like through my research indicated that visitors themselves when they are present does have a negative effect on little penguin behavioral responses in particular. So at all three zoos, I found little penguins showed avoidance responses. And I found that really interesting considering that I was already expecting, well, each zoo had very different enclosures, um, could also have, you know, different populations of little penguins in terms of age and like combination of, um, you know, male and female. I thought those aspects all might influence that, hey, I might actually find very different effects. But surprisingly enough, that despite having very different enclosures and very different zoo environments in that sense, that actually all the little penguins at each of the zoos kind of showed that those similar responses, so that avoidance response and potential fear from visitors when they were actually present. But what I was also able to identify as well through my research was it's in particular the close proximity of visitors. So it's not simply just the presence of visitors, but I was able to identify that it was visitors that are close and particularly when they are positioned above little penguins, that you had more pronounced avoidance responses by little penguins. So that, that's what I actually found quite interesting um, because when I made those a uh, bit of comparison between the three zoos, I picked up that, for example, Melbourne Zoo and Wellington Zoo, in terms of enclosure design, you initially may think that they look quite different, but actually both zoos enclosures at Melbourne and Wellington actually had similar aspects. For example, both enclosures had opportunities for visitors to actually be positioned above little penguins where they will actually had opportunities to, as I termed it within my research, loom over a particular area of the enclosure over the pool. While relative to Toronto Zoo, their enclosure had no opportunities at all for visitors to do any of that type of behavior. So the enclosure at Toronto Zoo Visitors were always below little penguins, no opportunities for visitors to lean over. So I found a role that despite it's um, the avoidance response for little penguins was in that same direction, but the magnitude of their fear response was quite different um, between the, the zoos. And I think that was the influence of primarily the different enclosure designs and therefore influencing the type of interactions visitors could actually have with the little penguins uh, while at the different enclosures. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all those really specific details. And it's in the detail that uh, we have to really look when we want to see in what ways can we now make changes, right? So perhaps 
you can talk a little bit about how you use that information to then, you know, regulate the effect of the visitor penguin interactions. Definitely, Sabrina. So because within my research, I was fortunate enough that I was able to implement an experimental design that I did have some opportunity to kind of look at actual potential practical uh, strategies that could be used to regulate the interactions between visitors and little penguins. So for example, one of the, I would say the key studies that really helped me identify some practical measures that I think zoos uh, would be able to kind of consider would be my Melbourne Zoo study actually. So within the Melbourne Zoo study, I was able to regulate interactions by utilizing a physical barrier where I placed um, a temporary barrier that was two meters away from the enclosure um, and push visitors away to, uh, by two meters. So they could not actually lean over uh, the enclosure edge because at Melbourne Zoo, initially, uh, when I was doing my preliminary observations, I found that, you know, because of the way Melbourne Zoo's penguin, penguin enclosure has been designed, it actually provided plenty of opportunities for visitors to lean on this enclosure ledge where they actually could touch the water of the pool of the penguins. I did occasionally did see some lovely visitors, you know, grab penguins as well. So not surprisingly, when I looked at this study, uh, I'm sorry, conducted this study that, you know, penguins showed a prominent and quite significant avoidance response because of it. So initially I was already thinking, okay, what will happen though with, if I, sorry, actually push visitors back two meters to prevent that behavior from happening. And what I found, not surprisingly, was that when visitors were further away and could not actually loom over, touch the penguins, touch the pool at all. Yeah, penguins were more visible, penguins were using the pool more as well, and showed less avoidance and were happy to actually come up to the actual enclosure ledge where visitors would usually be, but they were actually two meters back. So I found that actually having that physical barrier there was actually quite effective in not only regulating um, visitors in terms of their proximity, but actually prevented that behavior for, of that leaning over and touching the pool or penguins that really helped reduce the avoidance response within the penguins. So I would say that was one of the def, um, practical measures I identified would be quite useful for zoos to consider. And what supports that as well, uh, which I know I haven't touched base on a little bit yet, but um, I might as well kind of mention it now as well, is that within the PhD, since, as I mentioned earlier, I was very interested as well to understand what type of effect the animals themselves were also having on visitors. I did that by uh, measuring and assessing uh, visitor attitudes and experience. And to do that, I utilize surveys. So during these conditions at Melbourne Zoo, as well as Taronga, so I was only able to do visitor surveys um, at um, the two Australian zoos, so Melbourne Zoo and Taronga Zoo. But I actually found that one aspect that I was interested in ensuring that I also captured was that, okay, well, since I'm going to be introducing uh, actual, actual physical change to the visitor viewing experience, I wanted to see whether that's going to actually impact the actual experience of the visitors. So within the survey that I had, I had questions around um, rating the visit experience within the penguin enclosure and what are your attitudes or do you agree whether physical barriers would improve animal, uh, penguin welfare or would it improve visit experience and vice versa so I had questions like that and actually found through the visitor surveys that when a physical barrier was present so visitors were actually further away they actually compared to visitors that weren't exposed to that condition they actually were 
had no detrimental effects in terms of the physical barrier, had no detrimental effects on their attitudes or their experience while there. So I think that further supports that, you know, regulating interactions in some way form is not going to actually have a negative impact on visitor attitudes or experience when it's related to the interactions between little penguins and visitors by using a physical barrier. I was also able to do use that same survey and found that at Toronto Zoo, which I manipulated and regulated the interactions a little differently there um, because of the different enclosure design. So within Toronto Zoo, that study there, I looked more at uh, regulating the visual contact between visitors and penguins. And I also found in terms of when a visual barrier is present, found no effects on, um, in terms of negative effects on visitor attitudes or their experience. So I think those type of, you know, one-way visual barriers, physical barriers, where it's been shown to not only help animal welfare, I think with the surveys that I've utilized and found in my results, they didn't have any detrimental effects on visitor attitudes and experience. So I think that um, supports that these are actual feasible strategies that zoos could consider in managing those interactions between little penguins and visitors themselves without um, negatively impacting visit experience, but also improving animal welfare at the same time. Absolutely, yes, and I think it's such an important part because already earlier you mentioned you know, zoos depending on the revenue, and of course, not just on, on revenue, but also because you know, by through the education and conservation and welfare programs, we hope to inspire and engage the public to, you know, make become agents of change themselves, right? And, and do things for animals or the environment that they are that they can do in their bubble. So and understanding, of course, the animals perspective and the visitor perspective. So really coming from a whole all stakeholders perspective, we can try and find solutions that are actually going to uh, work for all parties. So I'm really glad that you were able to do all these observations and, you know, use that to then uh, also take it one step further and then see about visitor attitudes and finding that whether you have a visual barrier or a physical uh, barrier that that didn't really have any effect. And, and that's just really good news. And, uh, and then people can practically use that information. So that's, that's really wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I guess that leads very nicely into some of the other collaborative research that you have done on animal visitor interactions and the visitor experience, like talking about behaviors, attitude, perceptions, and learning in the modern zoo. So perhaps you can share a little bit about that work. Definitely, Sabrina. Um, I think, yeah, like you said, it just was really good timing that. So this particular um, collaboration um, is with uh, Dr. Eduardo Fernandez. So both of us were invited to guest edit on a special issue for the journal um, called Animal Behavior and Cognition. And so this particular special issue, Eduardo and I were chatting. So this was probably, oh, I think back in... 2019 now or was it 2018 uh, Water might need to correct me on this so it was one of those years but we I was fortunate enough to actually meet Eduardo he had made a visit down to Melbourne um uh 2018, 2019, I can't quite remember which year, but it was great. We really connected and bonded around penguins. I realized he 
has done quite a bit of work on penguins as well. And once he heard I was doing work on penguins as well and shared some of our research, it just got us really thinking about, you know, further work on um, animal visitor interactions. And from my research and some of the things that he's done in the past as well, and some of his past reviews, we recognize that actually, I think I mentioned it a little bit earlier with uh, what drove my PhD as well, that we actually haven't really seen too much further research on the understanding that aspects of the understanding the effects of the animal on the visitor, not only in terms of behavior, attitudes, but also experience. So that's what kind of really drove um, our collaboration together with this particular special issue. And so this particular paper that we've um, uh, written together as well with um, collaborations with Dr. Mark Learmonth, as well as Dr. Andrea Godinez, we were all keen to kind of get this particular paper reviewing animal visitor interactions and highlighting the actual need to understand that that other aspect of um, the visitor animal relationship, which is that effects of the animal on the visitor. And I think that's really important because from my own work and interests within starting to really look at visitor attitudes and behavior and experience, I've really learned how much attitudes of like human attitudes themselves really drive behavior. And I think that's a really, you know, I think really key avenue down the line and for future research to really look into, because I think that's another avenue zoos can really consider as a way to help manage and understand the interactions that's happening between animals and visitors to really manage. So yeah, this particular paper is kind of a bit of a review to kind of highlight those aspects, highlighting some of the current reviews that are out there on the effects of visitors on animals, but also vice versa. And we did, you know, identify that there's uh, a good number of views on the effects of visitors on animals, but only two or three on actually the effects of animals on the visitor themselves. So I think that's definitely one of the things and take home messages we hope that this particular paper kind of highlights to future researchers, whether they're students or um, academics, to really kind of start looking at this particular area, which is really understanding that visitor attitude because it really drives the visitor behavior. And I think that's a way zoos could actually focus on in terms of targeting those attitudes and understanding what a visitor is thinking about when they interact with animals and realizing that, you know, if it is that they really want to be close to animals, but, you know, other research shows that that really has an impact on their welfare. How do we, you know, maybe change those attitudes to then change the behavior of and the way visitors actually behave with animals while um, within a zoo setting, for example. So yeah, I'm really excited about this collaborative work and special issue. We're getting some really interesting papers, so I can't wait for the special issue to be, um, hopefully, we're, I think we're aiming for November this year. So keep your eyes peeled for all the research papers that are going to be part of the special issue. Wonderful. We'll definitely, with this podcast, put a link to the special issue and, of course, a link to your research gates profile so that people can download or request, you know, papers from you. And of course, uh, Zeus Victoria, if they want to learn more of what all the work is that you've just mentioned. And, you know, the other thing I would really like to hear about, because, you know, you finish your PhD and you're already boom into a job. Congratulations with that. I know you've just moved to Canberra and perhaps you can talk uh, to us about, you know, what does a policy officer do at the Australian Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment and what is your job like? Definitely, Sabrina. Thank you for that segue. Uh, I'm also, to be honest, quite dumbfounded a little bit and 
I'm mean, very grateful, but I can't believe as well that I know that I've literally finished and submitted the thesis early in the year. I know officially completed as well. Um, got that confirmation last month as well about finishing the thesis and PhD and then realizing right when I submitted the thesis, I was able to, I was job hunting for a fair time, I do a bit. So, you know, just be aware that that wasn't simply, hey, this popped up, but it was kind of good timing, I think, that it so happened that I actually had a friend from the Animal for Science Center in the University of Melbourne, who's also doing a PhD there. Um, so happened to be in Canberra and actually working for this particular team in the federal Australian federal government. Um, and, I was, you know, really keen to network and, you know, just do a whole bunch of job hunting and, you know, did a, I can't even remember how many job applications I did and job interviews before coming across this particular opportunity that, yeah, I think it was just really good timing. So I know that's a bit of a tangent. I know just let's get straight into what I actually do. So um, this particular position, um, as you shared earlier in this podcast, when you introduced me, so I'm a policy officer within the animal welfare team within the agricultural policy division at, for the Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment. So I am based in Canberra. So this particular position, um, as you, uh, as I just mentioned, is within the animal welfare team. So in terms of my role, primarily, I'm only four months in, so I'm still learning a lot. Just be aware of that, Serena. But again, it's really exciting work, though. Um, but my particular role within this team is really to focus on that the science aspect to ensure that the policy changes that we are working on, I go out there and find the right science, analyze the science, and ensure that any policy changes that um, the team or the department recommends around animal welfare. We focus primarily on farm animal welfare. So I do admit I am missing my zoo animal welfare aspect within this current role, but I hope down the line this will give me enough experience to lead into maybe some policy work with zoo animal welfare. But this current position is focused primarily on farm and water issues in Australia. So my research is kind of looking at all that science um, that is out there on the different farm and warfare issues um, and for me to analyze what's out there and ensure that whatever changes we may recommend within policy is justified by science. And I think that's just been one of the biggest things that I've loved about this job that I've actually I'm in a position where I can apply not only my knowledge and uh, background in animal behavior and welfare to ensure that science is being used at our government level. And I, all I'm seeing right now, which is such a great thing within this particular division department, I'm seeing science used so much. And I think what's been really great about realizing that and learning that and seeing it for my own eyes is that, you know, as scientists, I think you agree, Sabrina, that sometimes I think we forget we get in our little bubble, I think a little bit that, you know, there are points where you, you know, you may question where, where's your research going? Is it really being utilized? And I can definitely say on behalf of the work I'm doing with the federal government here in Australia, that the science is being used guys. And I'm glad I'm in that position to help the science be used correctly as well and ensure that we are doing the best that we can to make the recommendations that are supported by the right science for animal welfare. So hopefully I think that answers your question, Sabrina, but yeah, do let me know if you wanted further clarifications, but yeah, that's overall what my position I've been um, currently doing, but look, it's four months in, I could be throwing a huge ball curve or other things I still haven't learned yet that I'm really excited about. Yeah, I guess we'll just have to uh, get you back on the podcast in a year or two from now and hear, you know, 
as a policy officer or in what ways are you working? In what way has it benefited? Because it's great to hear, you know, that you can through the science, you know, really writing and pre presenting it, trying to make changes at a legislative level, you know, that's just really so important. And it's great that you, uh, I think that you're working, um, you know, for other animals, uh, like farm animals, you know, we have so many animals in so many different places, systems, whatever you want to call them. And uh, it's just absolutely wonderful that you are uh, putting all your knowledge and your research um, in, you know, for farm animals. So thank you for doing that. And I'm sure that you will um, also work with zoo animals again and continue because I'm sure you have some fingers somewhere on some research. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks, Serena. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I think you know me well enough that that is true. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So it's been really, really great hearing, you know, how you, you know, got to the petting uh, farm, the zoo in the beginning, you know, really the your your course through and your PhD and now this really exciting uh, different job that uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more. At the uh, final part of this podcast, and I'm kind of, you know, going to uh, go out here, but can you share with us a penguin story to conclude any penguin ah. story? Some fun penguin story. Oh, little penguin well, podcast. I, I mean, I can. Of course I can. Uh, look, uh, yeah, yeah, you throwed me a little bit, Serena, but like it's got me thinking, okay, which, look, in the scheme which of things, thinking about it. it or which little penguin <laughs> will it be? <laughs> well, actually, now thinking about it, because I know, you know, when all of us who've done like going through a PhD, that final stage of write-up, you know, it has been a while since you, you know, may have worked directly with the animals that you're studying. So it had to get me thinking there about, oh, what story can I say? And actually, I think I'd like to share that um, one of my funny, I would say, uh, little penguin stories uh, I like to share is actually through my last study with Wellington Zoo. I was fortunate enough to one, have Wellington Zoo open their arms and, you know, really welcome me to do the research on their penguins there because they were keen to understand, okay, what are visitors doing to these little penguins? Are they okay? And it's like, so I was really grateful for that. And so this story comes from that particular study. Um, so I didn't quite share um, earlier, but part of my studies, I was able to also look at a bit of stress physiology for little penguins. So for those who may be familiar with stress physiology, especially within a zoo setting, um, we always aim to try to do it non-invasively. So often that involves collecting a bit of, you know, little penguin poop in the process. So this, there was a look at Wellington Zoo, sorry. There were six little penguins um, during the study when I was there and it was one particular little penguin. And I swear, he definitely lived up to his name. His name was Bandit and he, <laughs> All the, all the, yeah, I know, like, ready, you're hooked. Like, the name really convinces you. It's like, oh, what's, what's going to happen? So Bandit, um, actually, all the penguins at um, Wellington Zoo, so the, they're little penguins, uh, were all rescue penguins. So all of them, unfortunately, had some form of injury um, that, you know, the uh, vets at Wellington Zoo identified that they could not be re-released in order for their survival. So they decided to, you know, house them within uh, Wellington Zoo. So this particular penguin bandit um, unfortunately had a missing wing, but that didn't stop him from living up to his name because he made my 
fecal collections at the end of each day quite difficult because Bandit unfortunately is very protective as you can imagine of his nest box but I learned while I was there that's one of the best locations to find penguin poop so I unfortunately had to you know disturb him a little bit and yeah there were there was a time during one of the days I was collecting, you know, his poop in his nest box and yeah, he just didn't have it, Serena. He came out and was starting to attack my leg and, you know, as a human being, seeing a little penguin that, you know, is on average 30 centimeters tall, I thought it was like, you know, a little cute. He was trying to attack my leg and then, of course, when I thought that the next day when I tried to collect his poop, uh, he came attacking my leg, but so happened, I think my socks and pants went aligned that day. So he got right in between that little space between my socks and pants on my ankle and went for it. And it, yeah, a little penguin bite. Yeah, not so friendly and yeah, quite painful. So I learned my lesson to, you know, with Bandit to respect his space and try to collect his poop when he's not in his nest box. So... <laughs> That's yeah. like my little highlight or one of my many highlights. But yeah, one of the stories I definitely remember of working with little penguins. Yes, I bet that needed a bandit. But um, yeah, gee, little, little, that's the little lessons that we learn from little penguins. Uh, thank you so much for sharing <laughs> that story with Bandit. And uh, I remember seeing the little penguins at uh, at Wellington Zoo. That was really oh, great. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think you were observing them at the time also. Yes, and I think that's where we met. I think that was yes, the first time we met, yes. Sabrina. I remember yeah. that. Yes, and uh, that was really, really great. It was just such a great conference, a really great welfare workshop. And uh, I love Wellington Zoo and visiting there. So uh, really, thank you so much for sharing that. We went from chickens to your zoo where PhD, now policy officer, and <laughs> you know, conclude with penguin poo. And uh, yes. Little Bandit, that was just absolutely lovely. Thank you so much, Samantha, for coming onto this podcast. And I can't wait to have you again in a few years from now and hear more stories about your work and animals, of course. Thanks so much. No worries, Sabrina. And uh, yeah, big thank you again for inviting me to this podcast. And like, yeah, just using this platform and all the work that you're currently doing through this platform is absolutely amazing. So I'm just grateful for this opportunity that, to be invited to take part in this podcast. And I'm absolutely grateful and delighted that you're part of it. So thank you so much for doing that and your time. I'll talk to you soon again, Samantha. Thanks. Thanks, Sarita. So that was the end of a wonderful podcast. We might have to go and check out, you know, Bandit at Wellington Zoo on their Facebook page or somewhere else. He, he could become very, very famous. But uh, thank you so much again, Samantha, for coming on to this podcast and of course, as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself so you can be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And of course, any of the other motivations like education, conservation and research that you may have. And PAUSE, the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform, is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice, as well as sustainability through the Earth Charter and the Sustainable Development Goals. So you can get continued education and other tools and resources so you, the animals, and the planet can flourish. If you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.